well, first of all, it's an inflected language. Endings. And, yeah, endings. endings. For example, in English, actually, English used to be an inflected language. Maybe fascinating to know. You may wonder, like, what am I doing here? But, <laughs> but, but inflected language means, like, in English, now we use prepositions. Like, for example, if I say, um, I go to the store, or I go with you, or I come from Los Angeles. I was actually born in Los Angeles. So I come from Los Angeles, I go to that place, I'm going with you, I am in the room. So those are all what are called case relations, like by using different preparations. For, it's always different to say, I, I go to the house or I am in the house, right? It's different. You change the preposition or I'm going with the house because I have a, actually a walking, talking house. Just so inflected languages mean that you don't use those prepositions. Well, you can, for example, in Sanskrit, you can say, um, well, let's say in English, you say, I see Krishna. If you say Krishna, I see, you also understand that if you say Krishna, see I, it means Krishna sees you, but you don't know English very well. <laughs> so the idea is that in, in English, because we use the prepositions, you have to put words in a certain order. But in Sanskrit, if you say, you say, Pashe Krishnam, it means I see Krishna. Or you can say, Krishnam Pashe. Because the M at the end of Krishna means it's the object of the verb. You know that. So I say, for example, Gacha Krishna, I go to Krishna, or I see Krishna. Just because, by the way, in English, English is connected to Sanskrit. We still have that in English. There's one word in English which still puts an M at the end of the word when it's the object of the verb. If anyone knows where, what that oh, word is. What? Very good. Brilliant young man. So yes. Yeah, like for whom the bell tolls. So if you say who goes there, then who is the object? Who goes there? Or I, he is the person who does something. So who is the subject? But if you say, uh, whom am I speaking with? Or, or to whom, yeah, yeah, to whom, to whom it may concern, then it's the verb. So, so Sanskrit's an inflected language. English used to be an inflected language. English used to put endings on the words. Like you say, for example, gache uh, krishnena, I go with Krishna. Krishnena means with Krishna. Krishnaya, means unto Krishna, like you have like Namo Krish, Krishnaya or Govindaya and all that. We have a Krishnaya in the class. So oh. <laughs> so, so if you say, for example, Govindaya, it means unto Govinda or Krishnaya unto Krishna. Or if you say Krishna, it means from Krishna. And Krishnasya means of Krishna. Like you say, that's Krishna's house. You would say, Tad Krishnasya Griham. That is the house of Krishna, Krishnasya, and Krishna means in Krishna. For example, you could say in Sanskrit, a simple word, you could say, uh, Sarvam Jagat Krishna, the whole universe is in Krishna. And, uh, and then there's Hey Krishna, like you're uh, talking to Krishna, you would just say Krishna. Radhe, by the way, Radhe is just the vocative form of Radha. Radha is the name, of course, is Radha. And then if, you, if you're talking to her directly, so in Sanskrit, if you say Radhe, then she knows that you're talking to her, like you're directly speaking to her. That's what Radhe is. So when, um, I, well, a little thing, when um, we, were, I get it all we were trying to move <laughs> our classroom, Krishna Shire and I, 
we um, I asked landowners if that would be the proper way to construct it to mean like taking shelter of Krishna. Yes, Krishna yes, yes, yes. So that's, that's our classroom saying, Krishna Sharana. So Krishna Sharana. <laughs> for it. Yeah. So, so any, any questions on Sanskrit? So they should study it because... Oh, oh well, yeah, sorry. Why study Sanskrit? <laughs> um, <laughs> if, if you, and I hope you do, if you plan sometime in your life to help other people to understand Krishna, in other words, if you have a sense of generosity, a sense of kindness or charity, and you would like to help other people to understand Krishna, then at least intelligent people, educated people, I mean, they'll be happy to hear from you, but if you know the original language, then they'll take you much more seriously. For example, if I meet someone who's a Christian and he says, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, it's like, okay. But because there's so many misinterpretations of the Bible and I've actually studied it like in the university, so I know a lot about early Christian history and so they may say this or that and there's a good chance I know a little more than they do about it. But if, let's say I meet a Christian and that Christian happens to know uh, what is called New Testament Greek. The New Testament, uh, the Old Testament was just the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible. And then after Jesus came, they wrote down these four little biographies of Jesus, which are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Paul, that's a whole story how Paul took over the church and why he's in the New Testament so much. But anyway, so... Uh, they wrote it in Greek, even though Jesus never spoke Greek. Jesus spoke a language called Aramaic, which is sort of a type of Hebrew. So why did they write that? Did anyone know here know why they wrote the New Testament in Greek and they finally got around to writing it? Because that was English back then. Back then in the world that people cared about, you know, so to speak, the modern world, which was Greece, and then of course uh, Rome was the major power back then. And so Greek, if you wanted to travel around the world, it's like, you know English, you can go around the world and find someone that you can, that understands you can tell you where the bathroom is, <laughs> which is often the most important question when you're traveling. So, so Greek was uh, the language that, that you would speak. So Greek was English back then. That's why they wrote the New Testament in Greek. So if you meet someone that, that's a Christian or say someone wants to tell you about Judaism and they, they actually understand the Hebrew of the Old Testament, or someone's a Buddhist. So when someone knows the language of what they're trying to teach, you take them more seriously. Because if I don't know Sanskrit, I'm taking someone else's word for what it means. Now, in this case, we trust Prabhupada. We accept him as a pure devotee. So we're not worried about what Prabhupada, how Prabhupada translates the Bhagavatam or the Gita. But when you're speaking to people, they may say, well, you don't really know it. You just accept it on faith that this book says this and this book says that you don't really know what the original text says. And then you'd have to say, well, but I believe the Prabhupada. Now I know Sanskrit and, and I know the Prabhupada translated it well, so I don't have, but still, if someone challenges me, I can tell them what the original words say and exactly what they mean. And so I can defend our point of view. So if you have any intention of teaching Krishna consciousness to this poor miserable world that just elected a narcissistic sociopath as a president. <laughs> so, yeah, so if you have any interest in actually helping other people, if you know at least a little Sanskrit, people will just take you much more seriously for the rest of your life. And it's nice to be taken seriously.
Okay, most of our other questions are scientific in nature, except for I am ready. one. Okay, so. You still didn't tell me what prizes I can win. Okay, so. Okay, so they're learning about evolutionary theory in science, and it seems like it started small and that evolved into greater, right, more linear, complex. And more complex. Right. But then um, they feel like the yuga cycle, Satya yuga, starts most complex and then devolves into Kali yuga, and that there's a cyclical nature of the Vedic knowledge and there's a linear nature of the scientific world outside of the Vedic knowledge, and how do you understand both? How do you reconcile those two things? And how do they both make sense? Okay. Yeah, how is it from, you go Satya right, to right. Kali and then the other Well, first of all, uh, going from Satya Yuga to Kali Yuga is not necessarily biological devolution. In other words, it's, it's not necessarily that basic human biology or basic human anatomy changed over the Yugas. People just became a lot more creepy. But, um, so they also, they also got shorter. Um, things like that, right? um, sorry, that's our bell. Oh, it's like, it's like, it's like, no friend, but all right, we were, we were friends ever way back, like 30, over 30 years ago. We were, I was going to be anyway. So, um, as far as People getting shorter and stuff like that. It's probably hostile, hostile aliens trying to stop the Sankirtan movement. They've infiltrated the computer. So, as far as people getting shorter and people used to be really big and Krishna was like 11 feet tall or something, whatever they say, um, that's not really in Shastra so much. There's a, I mean, okay. Can I be honest with you? Or do I know the truth? Okay, put another coin in the mirror. Um, there's a lot of things that are said in the Hare Krishna movement which are not exactly that way. I mean, the basic things are true. Like, you're not your body, Krishna's God, Prabhupada is Krishna's representative, you should serve Krishna. All that stuff is, is right there in the Bhagavad Gita. But things like, um, like people used to be, what the, what the Bhagavatam does say about Kali Yuga, it says, um, what does it say? Bhotikanam cha bhavanam shakti rasam cha That all material things, all material things, uh, their, their power, they lose their power in this age. Shakti rasam, their power diminishes. So you can say, well, that means they get shorter, but that's kind of interpretation of what it means. We have to look at Sanskrit, see what it says. If anyone has the Bhagavatam here, has that verse? Really, what, what's it? See, that, that's an example where I like to look at the Sanskrit and see what it actually says. But, but still, as far as evolution. So you're saying it's a devolution in consciousness is what happens over yeah. the Yeah. As far as evolution, I mean, here's the fact. What scientists actually know is that the tendency is that if you look at the older bones are, they talk about bones a lot. They're fossils. They're called oh, really old bones are called fossils. So the older they are, they tend to be more simple. And the, the, the younger they are, they tend to be more complex. And of course, as Judah Karma has pointed out, uh, there are a lot of exceptions to that rule. But that's what it tends to be. Now, how it got there, they haven't got the slightest idea. They pretend they know. 
But that's not science. Because the essence of science is actually the controlled experiment. You have to observe things. And so no one, you know, there's not one scientist in history that like watched things evolve. Oops, here it comes. It's a pig coming out of a crocodile. I mean, no one ever did that. So no one ever saw evolution. And if you say, well, even if even if species do get more complex, it's because Krishna did it. Krishna actually made it happen. How will science refute that? I'm actually going to talk on that. Basically, what happened, it, what, you see, when you talk to scientists, a lot of what they say is real science. A lot of what they say is just nonsense. They're just, they actually don't know what they're talking about. For example, just yesterday, preparing for my talk, I watched this uh, public, what is it called? Uh, PBS? Public broadcasting. Yeah. It was this educational thing on quantum mechanics, quantum physics. And, uh, and, so, and so this person, hey, you mind? Welcome back to the back to the class. So, um, what they um, what this guy said? They had some slick scientist. Actually, his brother is a devotee. He was he was on this TV show, and he said that actually all of us are just atoms. We're all just atoms and subatomic particles. And I thought, no, I'm not, you idiot. I mean, I, I, I'm not. You know, speak for yourself. You want to be an atom? Be my guest. But. <laughs> Because if you think about it, there's actually billions and billions of atoms in your body. So what does it mean? To, what does it even mean to, to say that I'm billions and billions of little electrical charges, you know, like protons, neutrons, pro protons, positive charge, neutron, neutral, electrons, negative charge? What does it even mean if I say to you that actually you are like, let's say we're walking on the beach, and I say actually you are billions of little grains of sand? I mean, what does that mean? You know, maybe it's just bad poetry, but 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 what does it what does it mean scientifically? What does it mean to say that a conscious you're one person, you are yourself, you're conscious, you are one person, you're a unique person, and consciousness is not a material object. You can't say like consciousness. You can't say what color it is. You can't say how much it weighs. It's consciousness. So what does it mean to say that you, a conscious person? are billions of little subatomic particles. It's just nonsense, just babbling. And that's not science. Because science can't tell you that, for example, consciousness is material. How can a scientist say that? There's nothing in science. I'm, anyway, I don't want to get into too much of this. I'm going to be talking about this. And, but it's, uh, there's physics and metaphysics. These terms come from Aristotle. Physics means just the physical world. You know, normal science, studying the world you can touch and taste and hear and all that, the physical world. Meta, in Greek, meta means beyond, what comes, what is beyond. So metaphysics means what is beyond the physical world. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Declaration of Independence, the DOI, by Bhakta Tom, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson was actually, you know, he's a really smart guy. Actually, John, President Kennedy once said, he once had all these Nobel laureates for dinner at the White House. He said, this is the greatest gathering of intelligence for a White House dinner since uh, Thomas Jefferson ate dinner alone. And so, <laughs> so if you look at the Declaration of Independence, it's actually, it starts out with a technical philosophical claim. It says that um, we hold these, first it starts out when in the course of human events, like we're doing this because the King of England is, is really being a jerk. So that's just, you know, the beginning. It's in a very nice way he said that. So then Jefferson said, um, we hold these truths to be self-evident. 
You know the Declaration of Independence? We hold, now what is self-evident? Self-evident is a technical philosophical term because Aristotle pointed this out actually, and Lord Chaitanya also used the same term, by the way, in his debates with Prakashananda and Sarvabhoma. The idea is if you claim something is true, you can be pushed, I mean, logically, into what is called an infinite regress of proofs. Regress means going backwards. You know, the opposite of regress is progress. Progress means going, ingress is go. So progress means going forward. Pro, by the way, P-R-O is just Sanskrit, pro, like pravartita. Anyway, so progress means going forward. Regress means going backwards. So I'll give you a simple example. Let's say you claim that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. Right? You all believe it? Please tell me you believe that. So water <laughs> boils at 100 degrees Celsius. Now, someone can say, I don't believe it. Prove it. Okay, so you put a pot of water on the stove. You put a thermometer in the pot. And at 100 degrees Celsius, the water boils. But someone can say, I don't believe that's pure water. I think you put some chemicals in the water to change the temperature at which it boils. So you say, okay, here's some chemicals that will prove this pure water. Someone can say, well, I don't believe that's real mercury in the thermometer. So you have to test the mercury. Then can, someone can say, well, I don't believe that those are real water testing chemicals. So in other words, you just keep going backwards. You say something is true. Someone says, prove it. You give the proof. They say, prove that. You prove that they want, so you just keep going backwards forever. So Aristotle said this. Aristotle said that you can be pushed in argument, you can be pushed into an infinite regress, going backwards forever, trying to prove things. And so how do you escape that infinite regress of proofs? How do you, how do you escape that? What Aristotle said, same thing Lord Chaitanya said, is that you have to come up with something which proves itself. Because if something proves itself, no one, you don't bring something else to prove it. It proves itself. An example of that is the sun. As they say, you can't hold a candle to the sun. If someone says, where's the sun? You can't, you know, like shine a flashlight on the sun because the sun is the brightest light. So if someone says, I don't see the sun in the sky, and in fact, it's a clear day, what that means is, that that person is somehow uh, visually defective. If the sun is in the sky and everybody can see it and someone says, I don't see the sun, then, you know, you need a doctor. <laughs> so in the same way, oh, here, here's an example of you can't, you cannot do material science unless you make unless you claim that something is self-evident. You cannot just do science. You first have to claim, of course, scientists never take philosophy classes, so they don't know, they wouldn't know philosophy if they tripped over it. But, I mean, you get a PhD in biology or physics, you don't have to take philosophy classes. So, for example, what if someone says, as Descartes, there was a French philosopher, scientist, really smart guy, in fact, the stuff he came up with still, everybody uses for all kinds of scientific processes, he invented like graph. He's a really smart guy, 1600s, French. Yeah. What? I think they're Yeah, yeah, Koji Ergo Sum, I think. Anyway, he did all kinds of stuff. But he, um, oh, that was I just gonna say now. Oh yeah, he said, what if I doubt everything? What if I, what if I sit down to meditate 
this book, he wrote a little book called The Meditations. What if I sit down to meditate and, and what if everything I think is true isn't true? What if everything I think is an illusion? And so uh, the first thing he, he came up with is he said, it's very famous, cogito ergo sum, which in Latin means I think, therefore I am. I can't doubt that I exist because, I'm, because if I doubt that I exist, how could I doubt myself if I don't exist? The only way I could doubt is if I exist. So the first thing he said was, I have absolute evidence that I exist. No one can say I don't exist because I'm, even if I'm doubting, that proves I exist. But then he said, what if there's an evil demon? What if there's, well, actually that's redundant. All demons are evil, they're no good demons. But anyway, what if there's, let's say like some evil genius or powerful person that actually has you in a laboratory right now and is making you think that you're in the classroom seeing the world. And, and the way they do it, modern philosophers, they talk about the brain in a vat. You know what a vat is? Like, like witches where they mix up all their stuff. In other words, what if, what if right now you're a brain somewhere else and, and someone's manipulating you, you, the brain, and making you think that you're, you know, you're in the Hare Krishna movement or something? So, or you're in Alachua, Florida. How do you prove that there's a real world outside your own mind? So that was a question that was raised. So, did you want to answer that question? No, oh, okay, I'm sorry, you're just yawning. Yeah, go ahead, yawn away. Okay. I, just, I just thought maybe you wanted to answer the question. So, so ultimately, how you, a scientist can't prove that there's a real world. Because you could say, for example, I could hold this up and say, look, this is a real flower garland. That proves there's a real world. That's called circular reasoning. It's a logical fallacy. Circular reasoning means that, let's say you're giving arguments for something. Like the typical thing is uh, all men are mortal. Women live forever, I guess. But anyway, that, that's what they say. Let's say, they, they say. let's say all human beings are mortal. We'll get rid of the chauvinist version of that. So if we say all human beings are mortal, that means all human beings die. And the typical example is Socrates is a man. He's immortal. Therefore, Socrates will die. Or you can substitute anyone else. Now, that's logic. If it's true, if it's true that all men are mortal, and if it's true that Socrates is a man, then it must be the case that Socrates will die. There's no way Socrates is not going to die. Yeah. But now, what if you say, but you see, if I, if a scientist, thank you. <laughs> The scientist holds up a garland and says, I can prove there's a real world. Look, this is a real garland. You can touch it. You can see it. But that's called circular reasoning because this is a real garland only if there's a real world outside your mind. <laughs> and so you can't give this as evidence there's a, there's a real world because the reality of this garland depends on the reality of the world. And the reality of the world depends on the reality of the garland. It's like two people drowning, just holding on to each other, and they both go down. <laughs> because you're just giving something as proof of itself, which means you didn't actually give an argument. So therefore, how can a scientist, on what grounds can a scientist say, there's a real world outside of my mind, and I'm studying and measuring a real world? So the scientist would have to say that it's self-evident. That's what he would have to say, or she. That it's self-evident. 
that the nature of my experience, when I wake up in the morning and I look out at the world, the experience, the experience I'm having is such that it proves itself to me. For example, let's say you're sleeping and dreaming and then you wake up. How do you know that when you wake up, that's the real world? What if you were in the real world dreaming and then you woke up and that's the dream? I mean, I'm... I'm pinch yourself. Blow your... So, <laughs> what she said? He said, pinch yourself. Pinch yourself? Yeah, but what if you... You can also pinch yourself in a dream. What's that? What did you say right now? It doesn't actually work. To pinch like, yourself in a dream? Yeah. You pull your finger. In a dream, it's like a big guy. In a dream, it stretches. <laughs> <laughs> what? So you pull your finger, but in a dream, it stretches. It stretches. It or, does, yeah, or, or nothing. Okay, well, anyway, we're, we're going to move on here. The point is, the point is, when you're dreaming, when you're dreaming, you do not think you're dreaming. Sometimes you think, sometimes, of course, you dream that you wake up, but it's just another dream. It's just part two of your dream. So the point is that when you're dreaming, you are completely convinced that's reality. But now when you wake up, when you wake up and you, you say to yourself or just you realize, I was dreaming. Now what basis do you make that conclusion? Why do you decide that you just woke up from a dream? I'll give you the answer if you like, because uh, that's yeah. what I'm paid for. Um, because when you wake up, you compare the quality of those experiences, the nature of that experience. And you, it is self-evident to you, it proves itself to you that my waking state is more real than when I was dreaming. So what I'm saying is, this is called, by the way, in, in Western philosophy, it's called foundationalism. Which means that every, and this is, a, a, this is a type of epistemology. Episteme in Greek means knowledge. So epistem there are different branches of philosophy. Like there's political philosophy. What is, the, what is the best way for human beings to govern themselves or to be governed? Or there's ethical philosophy. You know, what is moral and what is immoral? Or there's ontology, which means that what things really exist and what is the nature of real things? How do they exist? In Sanskrit, that's called Tukla, by the way. Like Vishnu Tukla, Jiva Tukla. And, and another branch of philosophy is epistemology, which is how do you know you know? Like, let's say someone, like, sometimes you'll meet people, even in the Hare Krishna movement, which is, well, shouldn't surprise us, that, um, that think the earth is flat. That's what I'm reflecting. <laughs> what do you think about flat earth theory? <laughs> I think people that think the earth is flat kind of, the only really flat thing I think is kind of their head, but <laughs> I've been taking too many airplane flights to believe it. So anyway, um, so epistemology means if someone claims I know something, it's not my opinion. I actually know it. How do we judge that? Under what circumstances? Under what conditions? Are you justified in saying that you know something that it's not just your opinion? And when is it just your opinion? What has to be true for you to say that you really know something? So the point is there's different ways to get knowledge, but every, it has to have a foundation. Ultimately, there has to be something which proves itself to you like there's a real world. Otherwise, you'll be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. 
Now, here's the point about Krishna consciousness. Now we get to the spiritual part of our program. That's what I'm paid for. So, it's an honest job, right? It's an honest way to make a living, Sanyas. So, the idea is that when we, when we chant Hare Krishna, when we chant Hare Krishna, we read Bhagavad Gita, or just, we, when we have an experience of Krishna, that experience proves itself to us. I mean, for someone that, that really understands what we're doing. So my experience of Krishna is just as real to me as my experience that, there, that there's a real world outside of myself. Now, what if someone does know about Krishna? Even if you don't believe in God, you still have to admit that you live in a bi-dimensional universe, which means there's a physical dimension, but there's a, there's a metaphysical. I'll, I'll prove it to you. In America, I mean, Thomas Jefferson said, it's a self-evident truth that we're created equal. Now, the fact is, you could give everyone in this room or just everyone in Florida or on Earth any imaginable kind of test, and you, it will show we're not equal. All of empirical science, like all of it, shows that we're not equal. We can't all run just as fast. We're not all equally artistic. We don't all have the same emotional IQ mathematical intelligence, we're just not equal. We're actually, and so every conceivable, every imaginable scientific test will show that we're not equal. And yet, in establishing a government in America and now all over the world, all science is rejected. People that founded this country rejected all empirical science and decided there is a metaphysical fact which actually is more important than all the science in the world. And that metaphysical fact is that we're equal. So if someone says we're all equal, people should treat it equal, I have a simple question. How do you know that? You cannot prove scientifically that we're equal. So how do you know we're equal? How do you know that everyone should have equal rights? Why shouldn't rich people get 100 votes and poor people maybe one or none? It's kind of like that now. But anyway, so... <laughs> But how, how can you prove we're equal? Or for, here's another example. You've heard of Darwin, right? Yeah, he's one of my good buddies, Charles Darwin. So in 1859, he published The Origin of Species. Now, it, it was such a sensation. It was like this blockbuster that people started saying, well, wait a second. If Darwin's right and it's really survival of the fittest, maybe, that, maybe we should have social Darwinism. In other words, if poor people starve to death, maybe that's a good thing. Because if they're poor, they're probably a little stupid. And, uh, you know, they're just going to drag down our gene pool. So it's probably better that poor people starve. Or if, let's say, or if we conquer these other people, that means we, we're tougher, we're stronger, we're just better specimens. And so when we eliminate the weaker, and it's like the law of the jungle, survival of the fittest, might makes right, we're, we're just helping nature to progress. Because that's what, you know, that, that's what evolution is all about. It's about stronger creatures, smarter creatures, killing dumber creatures and weaker creatures, or the dumb and the weak, or the, those that can't adapt because of climate change or whatever, they just die out. Now, there was one guy in Europe who really liked Darwin. And he thought, I love this stuff, and I want to carry out a project of social Darwinism which means helping nature, helping nature to progress by helping, you know, the better, the smarter, the stronger human beings 
to survive. And so he consciously said, I'm going to carry out a project of social Darwinism. And he did. Well, he, 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 he created a project. And uh, that person's name, you've probably heard of him, is Adolf Hitler. So when Adolf Hitler started his genocide, when he started, you know, the first time in history, sort of creating factories, murder factories, where you don't just kill people the old-fashioned way with a sword or a knife or you strangle them or, you know, all that fun old-fashioned stuff. But now you actually create factories, like industrial killing factories. And, and you commit genocide. You actually try to kill millions of people. And Hitler believed that he was just following Darwin. So now, if you say, or someone is an atheist, let's say, and say it says that nothing is real except matter, all that really exists is just dead matter, then you have no, you have no philosophical right to say that Hitler was bad, or he did something bad. You have nothing to say to Hitler or Mao Zedong. Actually, uh, you know, some people think it's really cool to be a leftist or a Marxist or communist. They don't mention one fact, that actually people who claim to be Marxists and communists killed about 20 times more people than Hitler. So the next time you meet someone that thinks it's like really cool or sexy to be a Marxist or something, yeah, you know, they killed about 20 times more people than Hitler. Nice people. So like Mao Zedong, Stalin, Castro actually in Cuba killed a lot of people. The Khmer Rouge in Cambodia that killed like 20% of the whole country. I mean, imagine it'd be like if someone in America killed about uh, 70 million people. I mean, percentages. Mathematically, it would be like if someone killed 70 million people in this country. That's what they did in Cambodia. Remember, they were communists. So, you know, it's a great thing, Marxism. But the point is, if, here's a simple question you can ask people. Do you believe that it's morally wrong to torture and kill innocent people? Now, if you say that, yes, it's wrong to do that, that means you live in a bi-dimensional universe. Because there's no scientific way to show that it's wrong. Wrongness and rightness are not physical objects. Material science cannot talk about morality. It cannot talk about values like right, wrong, equality. Those are not physical things. Science has nothing to say about them. So if you think that anything is really bad, like torturing and killing babies or something, if you think that's bad, it means that you live in a bi-dimensional universe in which there are real physical things and real metaphysical things. So now you have to ask yourself the question, if I live in a universe that clearly has two dimensions, the physical and the metaphysical, how could that be the case? How could there be a universe in which there are real things that are not material? Where do they come from? And how could they exist at all? And you end up getting developed. So um, that I'm going to talk about these things. I mean, so you, the, the, the science, they don't have to contradict each other. They, they can be talking about. Absolutely. And they used to. If you look at the history of the Western world, science like for Aristotle and for Descartes and for Newton, Newton was very religious. Newton thought he was serving God by showing how the universe, because the more logical the universe is, the more obvious it is that someone built it. Because the universe ultimately isn't stupid. There's a lot of stupid people in it. 
<laughs> but 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 the universe itself is is it it's a work of infinite genius in terms of engineering. So if you look at the history of science, most of the great scientists in history believed in God and believed that they were serving God by doing science. Copernicus, for example, the Copernican Revolution. Copernicus, nice Polish gentleman, who was the first one that figured out that the sun, that the earth goes around the sun. That's called heliocentric. He, helos in Greek is the sun. So heliocentric means that the sun is the center. And the other idea is geocentric. We want to talk about flat earthers. They're like, give them more persona. So, but in terms of, so everyone thought this, they just, all the planets, the sun go around the earth. The earth is the center of the universe. Now, one of the reasons that, that Copernicus was interested in figuring out what's really going on up there is because he thought we can do better astrology that way. In other words, Copernicus wasn't like a modern scientist, atheist, sort of like nitwit. Copernicus actually, and the church, the church actually asked him to figure it out because they couldn't calculate when the, like Christmas was or Easter because they didn't have an accurate reading. They went by. But most of the great scientists in history believed in God. Now, another thing I'm talking about very briefly is the scientists who said, you know, only we know objective truth, we can explain everything. They ended up with pie in their face. And that pie is quantum pie, it's quantum mechanics. Do I have time for that? Yes. Okay. It, actually, I may not have time. I'm supposed to. Okay, five more minutes. You've heard of quantum mechanics? Quantum physics? I'll explain what happened. Newtonian physics, Newton, it's like things you can see, like a ball falls in, at a certain speed, or the earth goes around, and so on. Quantum mechanics studies things that are smaller than atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons. So that's called subatomic. It's, it's smaller than atoms. And so what they found is that and that's where electronics comes from. It comes from quantum mechanics, because electronic, which means the stuff you figure out by studying electrons right electronic so they found is very quickly because i gotta run and yet i got a free lunch today that's you know you want free lunch take any else <laughs> so the idea is that um when you look at in quantum mechanics when you look at electrons when you look at them they change their behavior when I mean, you don't look at them they act a different way it's like you know say you're like doing all kinds of crazy things and suddenly your mother walks in and so you sometimes you have to slightly modify your behavior so yeah so so the point is when we look electrons tend to act like waves i mean i can't i don't have time to go in but they tend to act like like energy like a wave you think, think of like an ocean wave if there's an ocean wave let's say that comes to two little tunnels in the sand and and, and let's let's say the tunnel's big enough so the, the water's not going to break it so there's a flood and the water goes through two parallel tunnels. So the water is going to divide. <clears throat> it's going to go through those two tunnels. And then once it gets to the other side, the, the water is all going to merge and become just a big wave again. Whereas if you throw a ball through the tunnel, it just goes to the tunnel. But a wave is different. So waves behave differently than particles or like balls. They just behave differently. So what happens is that when scientists study electrons, they, they act like, particles but when they're not looking they act like waves and then as soon as you look again they like 
Oh, no, I'm just a particle. <laughs> Not only that, they found that, that you can have like, um, like a neutron, you, you can have these tiny little super tiny particles, subatomic particles, and they can be like 10 miles apart and they talk to each other. Because particles, these subatomic particles have spin. And when two particles, like, I don't know, get married, become like prehusta subatomic particles or something. <laughs> anyway, when, when, when two particles, when they, when they combine, they always spin in opposite directions. That's how they combine. It's like negative, positive, and they, they bind together. Now, you can separate these particles, and they can be literally, and these are like, I mean, inf infinitesimal. They can be 10 miles apart. But if you make one of them spin a different way, the other one will immediately also spin a different way. Actually, Einstein called this spooky action at a distance. And so they can't figure out why this happens. It's called quantum mechanics because let's say I'm walking to the door, which you'll actually see me do in a few, just in a minute. Let's, let's say, for example, I walk to the door. There's no way I can get to the door without passing through the space between me and the door. I have to do that. That's not what electrons do. It's called quantum mechanics because a quantum is a unit of a quantity. It's a certain quantity. So a specific quantity is called a quantum. Now what happens with electrons is that they orbit. It's like they orbit the uh, nucleus of an atom, but, and, and they go up and down depending on how much energy they have. When they, when, when, when they lose some energy, they go down to a smaller orbit and the energy they lose you, you actually see it as light. That's actually why things glow, because the electrons are losing energy and, and, and the energy is coming out as light. So anyway. Electricity. Yeah, electri yeah electricity. Actually, from electron, electricity. Yeah. And so what happens is that when an electron goes to a different orbit, it doesn't pass through the space. It doesn't pass through the space between the two orbits. It's just here, and then it's there and it doesn't pass through the two spaces. The reason we know that is because normally when, when you look at light and you put in, you know, light and put it in a prism, you see a whole spectrum of light where, where let's say the, the red light gradually turns into a different color light. You get a spectrum of gradual colors. But when you look at light coming out of atoms, what happens is you just get bars of color. And those are the different orbits where the light comes out of because Electrons do not go from point A to point B. They're either at, they're at point A and then they're at point B. They don't go between. And so how do they actually get there? How do electrons or, you know, talk to each other when they're 10 miles apart? And one knows exactly what the other one is doing. And there's all kinds of stuff like this. And they can't figure it out. Why is it that an electron, a bunch of electrons will act like a wave? And they test this by making them go through slits and everything. But then as soon as you look at it, it, it acts like a particle. And when you look away, it becomes a wave again. And even when they put detectors, even if they put cameras, there's no human person. The electrons know someone's watching them, even if the person watching them is just going to watch them five hours later on a film. The fact that you're filming, that you're watching the electrons, they behave, they know someone's watching. Even if it's just a camera, they know there's a camera there. Now, so scientists, they start to talk like, it's almost like a Harry Potter movie. You know, they start saying like, wow, that's weird, that's strange, that's mysterious. And so 
science was supposed to explain everything. So quantum mechanics, they just hit this brick wall. So much so that 100 years ago, and this takes a long time to trickle down to the ordinary people on the street. 100 years ago, the greatest quantum physicist in the world said, we do not know what's really going on down there. We don't, know, we, do, we don't know what it really looks like. We actually don't know. All we can say is we've come up with equations, and when you use these equations, we can build really cool electronic devices, and we can do experiments. So the equations work, but we have no idea what it really looks like. We have no idea what's really down there. And so they gave up what's called in philosophy correspondence, that when I say atom, electron, this and that, what I say corresponds to what's really there. Like if I say, for example, uh, if I say um, temple room at ISKCON, New Raman Rady, there's a temple room and it's this color and this size, you can go look at the temple room and you'll see that it corresponds to what I said. My words correspond objectively to what's actually there. But when you get to quantum mechanics, which they actually, they don't know what the hell is going on. They really don't know. And they gave up trying. In fact, there's a, a scientist named Heisenberg who read Vedanta Sutra and really liked it. Heisenberg called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. He showed mathematically that the more you know about where an electron is, where its location, the less you know about how fast it's moving. And the more you know about its velocity, the less you know where it is, and you just can't fix it. <laughs> you can't fix it. So they've actually proven mathematically that basically science hit a brick wall, and they just can't figure out what's really down there. So that should make them humble. And also, the worst thing, the, the worst thing of all for them, it really looks like mind is controlling matter. And science grew and took over by saying no more spookiness, no more magic. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna tell you what's really there, consciousness. You know, there's no mind over matter. That's a, just a cheap circus act. So anyway, I guess so. I have to run because uh, you know that's what I do as sannyasi. I go for free lunches. But so the point is that this idea of science knows everything. No, actually they don't. They've hit a brick wall, and they actually haven't got the slightest idea how this stuff is going on at that level. But it doesn't negate that they know some things. They know a lot. How they work. How things. Work. No, they know a lot. Science is great. They just need to be a little more humble and admit. For example, if you just say the only real knowledge comes from science, you cannot say Hitler did anything wrong. You cannot say that unless you're a philosophical hypocrite. If you are a materialist, you cannot say it's wrong to kill innocent people. You just can't say that because you're contradicting yourself. If there's nothing except matter, there's no justice, there's no mercy, there's no equality, there's no, there's no good or evil. Those aren't material things. Those are values. Values are metaphysical. So we live in a bi-dimensional universe because we know that certain things are really wrong as clearly as we know there's a real world outside our mind. And therefore, the epistemological structure, the, the way we conclude that some things are right or wrong or Krishna's God, turns out to be the same method of getting knowledge that tells us there's a real world. So, so anyway, thank you all. All right, Krishna, see you guys later. See you tomorrow. I have to say, oh, uh, these are, is everyone on Facebook? You want to say hello to all uh, my cult followers? Guru Kulit Nuram Reiti. you had a lot more questions, right? Oh. Yeah.